team. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Let me open this up in a word of prayer and we can get rolling. Father, we are so grateful for those truths we just sang, that your grace truly is amazing. And we get to celebrate that today and reflect on that and made that just encourage us in our spiritual growth and, and just allow us to worship Jesus on a deeper level this morning. As we now turn to your inspired and errant word as we continue our examination of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Give us wisdom, give us insight, allow us to understand how to rightly apply this text to our lives and have a better understanding of the prophecies that you have given us uh, just regarding what things will look like in, in the end times. So just guide our time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the past couple of years, uh, our Highland Church staff is required to go through these regular trainings on how to spot, avoid, and report uh, anytime we encounter a scam or something that, uh, you know, is being used to try to gather information or, or, or get us to give money to something that is, is you know, a, a false thing. So at first, a lot of these uh, scam trainings were a little bit boring, I'll confess. As a younger millennial, I thought, you know, I'm probably not going to fall for any of these scams. And uh, most of the ones that we encounter as a staff are usually pretty easy to spot. On a regular basis, we usually get an email from a supposed Jeff Hines. The email address is seniorpastor165 at gmail.com, which is obviously not Jeff's email address. And within the email, we'll usually ask for us to urgently give him a phone call or urgently go and buy a prepaid visa card and send it to him. A lot of the times these emails are filled with typos. And if you know anything about Jeff, one, he's not going to send an email asking us to send him a prepaid visa gift card. And two, there's not going to be any typos. Okay, so it's really easy to spot that these are a scam and these are not from Jeff Hines. So I was getting a little bored of these. I think these are never going to take me in. I'm not going to fall for these scams. Well, you know where this is going. A couple of years ago, I was taken in by a scam. Now, it wasn't a Jeff Hines. Let me, let me explain what happened here for this particular scam. Uh, I received a phone call from what appeared to be AT&T on my cell phone. Right? So I answer the call and I ask what's going on and someone answers and greets me and says he's from AT&T and uh, he asked me if I was in New York currently trying to buy two iPhones and add two iPhones onto our family's plan. I said, no, I was sitting in the round table room with a bunch of staff members. I said, absolutely not. I'm in Wisconsin. That's me. Don't authorize that purchase. He says, okay, okay. That's what we thought. It looked a little fishy. He said, let me just verify your information. He said, and, uh, well, hold on, hold on. Before you start thinking I'm too dumb, he gave me my information. He gave me my date of birth, the address, the phone number. He had, he had everything, a four for four, which lulled me into sleep in this particular scam. And I trusted him, right? So now I think that he's on, on my side. So he stopped everything. I said, thank you. He said, okay, well, obviously the account's been compromised. We need to reset your information. We're going to send you a text message and just read us this verification code and we'll reset the information. I said, great. So I get a text message. It, it is certainly from AT&T and it has this code. However, the guy on the phone was not from AT&T. He was trying to get that code from me. And I fell for it hook, line, and sinker, right? So I repeat the code back to him. And by giving him that code, guess what he was able to do? He was the guy from New York. And he bought two iPhones and added two lines on there within five minutes. 
I was taken in. Here, I thought this guy on the phone was my friend trying to help me, but he wasn't. He was the one trying to deceive me. So after this, you know, I finish up the call. I thank him for his help. He gives me a fake employee ID number, just the icing on the cake. And then his name, I think at this point, he's just taunting me. He said his name was Dwight Howard. So as I'm hanging up the phone, I'm realizing that something's just not quite right, right? So by the time that our family got a hold of AT&T 10 minutes later, wouldn't you know, everything that he said he was trying to prevent had happened. And uh, yep, I was taken in. So it was a humbling day in the life of Andrew. Here I thought I was never gonna fall from one of these scams and I didn't need any training. And then I was taken in, I had to walk over to Jolene's office with my head down and say, yeah, I guess we need to continue those scamming trainings because we're not as good as we think, right? So I should have known better. I shouldn't have been taken in, but I wasn't vigilant enough. I, I, I had stopped looking for those details. I, I should have known that he was trying to steal from us, that he was a fraud, a charlatan, a fake, but I didn't catch it because I let my guard down. I forgot my training. And in the end, I was deceived. And I start with this, this story this morning because it gives us a good picture of what Jesus says is going to take place during the final days, during the end times. He says there's going to be a rise of dangerous deception. However, the deception that's going to take place during the Great Tribulation is far more severe than someone pretending to be your friend to get a couple iPhones and, and lines added to your account. It's going to be much more dangerous than that. It's going to be a, a deception that leads people into worshiping the Antichrist as the Messiah and the resulting consequences are really eternal separation from the Lord. And with the stakes so high, Jesus doesn't want us to be taken in by this deception. So he gives some, some practical advice for how to spot, avoid, and over overtake the deception that we're going to face. So with that overview in mind, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to look at verses 23 through 31 together. And in this passage, we're going to see four themes woven through the passage. We're going to see dangerous deception, worsening wickedness, divine discipline, and then finally, the eternal exaltation of Jesus. So with these four themes in mind, let's go ahead and read our passage together, starting in verse 23. Here's what Jesus says. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there is the Christ, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets are going to arise and they will perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if it were possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner room, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And here's that final sign. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. And he, Jesus, will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. <clears throat> 
Now, to rightly interpret these verses, we need to remember the context. And we see the context in verse 21. Verse 21 reminds us that uh, the setting for these things taking place is going to be during the Great Tribulation. And in just a way of review, the Great Tribulation is Daniel's 70th week. It's a seven-year period that's yet to take place. And during this seven-year period, two things are going to coincide— the Antichrist rise to global power and God's pouring out of his just wrath upon a sinful world. And as these two realities converge, there's going to be increasing worldwide spiritual deception, idolatry, and immorality. And in verses 23 through 27, Jesus really focuses in on the idea of deception. And that's our first theme we're going to explore this morning, dangerous deception. During the tribulation period, the vast majority of the world is going to be deceived by the words of the Antichrist and ultimately the one empowering the Antichrist, Satan himself. Paul uses similar language to our passage in 2 Thessalonians 2 to describe this time. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, the coming of the lawless one, another name for the Antichrist in the New Testament, is by the activity and power of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure and unrighteousness. Now, looking at both the words of Paul and Jesus, which really paired together well, I think we can make a few key observations about the dangerous deception that's going to take place during the time of the tribulation. First of all, the deception is able to take root because people refuse to love God's truth. As the last days approach, people will be so repulsed by God's truth, God's moral standards, that they will happily embrace any available alternative. And sadly, I think we already see a lot of this attitude. There is uh, increasingly a distaste for God's truth and God's morality in our culture. And instead, our culture is looking for any type of alternative truth, a subjective truth, an alternative truth, a less restrictive truth. But second, we see the spiritual deception of the Antichrist is able to take place because it's accompanied by all sorts of signs and wonders and miracles. As Paul says, the work of the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to, they're going to be able to do seemingly miraculous things. They're going to use signs and wonders and miracles to try and validate the false gospel that they will be proclaiming. And that's really no surprise, is it? Because that is exactly how God validated his message of salvation. And as Pastor Jeff said last week, Satan is very unoriginal. He's not creative. He just copies and distorts whatever God does. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 2.4 tells us that God validated his message of salvation by bearing witness through signs and wonders and various miracles. Satan is going to rip off God's design and try to do the same thing. You know, thinking of that, Satan kind of reminds me of this time when my wife Megan and I were walking through the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul. If you know anything about the Grand Bazaar, it's kind of one of the world's largest kind of outdoor enclosed uh, 
flea market shopping areas. And as we're walking through, there is a vendor who is selling blazers. I happen to like blazers, so it kind of caught my eye. So we we go into this uh, shop. And as I'm talking to the guy, we're looking at these different styles. And he says, he says, these are, these are top-notch, these are great quality blazers. Very, very good looking. I said, well, okay, thanks. He says, Here, here's how you know. He goes, each year, I just copy Hugo Boss. I just, to whatever Hugo Boss makes, I make. He goes, so they, they're good blazers. I'm just kind of laughing at him, but that's what he's saying. He's like, you look good in a Hugo Boss blazer, which this may or may not be a blazer from Istanbul. So, you know, <laughs> nothing nothing in his shop was authentic or creative, right? It was just a knockoff of what he saw someone else do and he tried to pedal, pedal it off as, as his own. That is what Satan does. Nothing he does is creative or authentic. He just rips off and distorts God's good designs. In this instance, Satan is going to copy God's mode of operation by using signs and wonders to validate his false religion, his false messianic figure, and ultimately his false divinity. And I think there's an important lesson for us in these verses. I think this is a warning that just because we see something that's seemingly miraculous or supernatural, that does not necessarily mean it comes from the Lord. In fact, this is something that the Lord had warned the nation of Israel a couple thousand years ago in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3, God warns them and says, you know, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder he tells you comes to pass, so what happens? He fulfills that. But then he says to you, let's go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. So what God is saying here is if a supernatural sign or wonder takes place and someone uses that as a reason to leave the Lord and pursue a false God or false messianic figure, God says, don't believe them. They're not a true prophet speaking for me. They are a false prophet. I think one of the most obvious examples of this in the modern time would probably be the Mormon church. Uh, The Mormon church began in the 1800s, and today it has over 16 million worldwide members. In fact, it has 51,000 worldwide missionaries. To put that into perspective, our denomination, the Evangelical Free Church of America, has on average 350,000 attenders each week. So it dwarfs the size of our denomination and our mission board. The Mormon church began with the life and teaching of a guy named Joseph Smith. And at the age of 17, he claimed to have experienced during dreams on a regular basis an angel. And this angel brought golden tablets that had ancient hieroglyphics that he alone could translate. And through his translation over the coming years, he produced the Book of Mormon, which was a correction to Scripture in addition to Scripture and ultimately presupposes the message of Scripture. Now, this is an instance where something seemingly miraculous, even a visitation from an angel, produced something that violates God's word. And The Book of Mormon is filled with contradictions to tier one issues of doctrine. Things like salvation, the nature and person and sacrificial work of Jesus, the Trinitarian nature of God. Many things that scripture is very clear on. I think it's a perfect illustration of what Jesus is warning against. 
Just because something supernatural or miraculous might have happened, that does not necessarily mean it's true and from the Lord. Even though Jesus is warning us about a specific deception that will take place during the tribulation in our passage this morning, I think this passage still has application for us. Because as John tells us in his epistle, even though the Antichrist is yet to reveal himself, the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in the world. Satan loves to disguise himself as an angel of light. He attacks the church from both without and within. And the way he most often attacks the church from within is by raising up false prophets who will try to contradict the message of God's word. And Jesus warns us here that these false doctrines at times are going to be quite persuasive. In verse 24, Jesus makes this point rather vividly. He says that these signs and wonders would be able to lead astray even the elect if they weren't sovereignly kept by God. I think that's what Jesus is getting after in this passage. He's he's using that as an illustration. If this is the case, then the only way that we can combat the spiritual deception is having an unfaltering devotion to God's word. God's inspired and errant word must be the foundation for our doctrine, our beliefs, our morals. We can't rely on signs and wonders. We can't rely on spiritual experiences or impressions. We can't base our beliefs off of what is most popular even within the Christian culture within our country because the Christian culture can get it wrong. And we especially can't rely on our own intuition or wisdom. God's word must be the lamp guiding our feet through the present darkness. In the words of the reformers, sola scriptura, God's word alone. Let's continue on in our, in our passage. In verses 24 through 26, Jesus tackled the theme of dangerous deception. But then in verse 27, he gives us a word picture of what his return, his second coming, is going to look like. Jesus tells us he's not going to emerge as a nomadic prophet from the desert. He's not going to come in secret and reveal himself to only a select few. Anyone who says so is lying. Instead, when Jesus returns, it's going to be unmistakable. He compares his second coming to a brilliant bolt of lightning that stretches across the sky. We've seen a few of those over the last few days, haven't we? And when that bolt of lightning goes across the sky, it's loud, it's powerful, it's illuminating, and really it's unmistakable. Jesus says you're, you're not going to miss it when he comes back. He, the full measure of his power and glory and might will be on full display. And we'll dive into that a little more in depth in our third point. But let's look first at verse 28 for our second theme. In verse 28, Jesus gives us another sign that will precede his glorious second coming. Listen, listen again to this verse. He says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Once again, Jesus is using a word picture to describe a spiritual truth here. And if we just stop for a moment and think about this word picture, it'll make a lot more sense to us. How many of you have ever seen vultures circling around, a flock of vultures circling, right? We've probably all seen that. If you've ever climbed to the top of Rib Mountain on the Quarry Trail, you've probably seen it. There's always vultures circling up there for some reason. And vultures, they are scavengers, which means that vultures usually eat dead, decomposing animals. Whenever you see vultures circling, you know something died and they're coming down to get rid of the remains. 
kind of nasty, right? But they play an important part in our ecosystem by getting rid of the dead decomposing bodies. Well, here's how Jesus is using that illustration. He says, just as when an animal dies, the vultures gather, when the world has reached a state of total moral decay, Jesus is going to be near and he's coming back to deal with the remains. Now, it's not a pleasant image, but it's a reminder that when Jesus comes back for his second coming, he's not returning to save the world. He's coming back as an avenger. He's coming back to judge the world for its sin and unrighteousness and then to reign as king for a millennium. And as we think about this word picture, we come to our second theme, worsening wickedness. As the return of Jesus draws closer, we will see worsening and deepening wickedness take place all across our world. Contrary to what our culture says, our world is not on a trajectory that's headed in a good direction. It's headed instead in a bad direction. Just consider Paul's description of the heightened wickedness in the final days in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. He says, hey, Timothy, understand this. In the last day, there's going to be times of difficulty. For people, here's the attitude, the morals of the last days. People are going to be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They'll try to have the appearance of godliness, but they'll deny God's power and avoid such people. Now, why do you think both Jesus and Paul take the time to paint a picture of the bleak moral landscape in the last days? Well, I, I think here's why. I think they do so that we're not surprised when it happens. According to both Paul and Jesus, we should expect things to get worse, not better, the closer we get to Jesus' return. Yet I think many Christians in our culture have forgotten this prophetic word. Since our nation's inception, the Christian worldview and ethical system has enjoyed an unprecedented amount of influence and power. However, according to scripture, that is by far the exception and not the norm. Think of what Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life will experience what? Persecution. And even though that's been the exception for our nation, I think in recent years, that unprecedented influence is beginning to wane. There's a moral decline that's amplified. We can see the wickedness worsening around us. But sadly, I think a lot of Christians have been caught by surprise by this development. And because of this, a lot of us have felt tempted to fall into either cynicism or alarmism, neither of which are the proper response. Now, as we rightfully lament the moral decline that we see taking place, we must also not grow hopeless, angry, or combative. Uh, we are not the first Christians to live in an immoral culture. We're, we're simply not. If you were to look at the rest of the world, uh, most of the world has it a lot worse off than we do when it comes to morality and ethics. And lest we forget the context of the entire New Testament, Every letter, every epistle was written to people, Christ followers, living in what empire? The Roman Empire. All you have to do is crack open a history book and read a little bit about the Roman Empire, and you realize they were not a shining beacon of God's morality. 
They far outpaced us in their rampant wickedness and immorality. So that just reminds us that we are not alone in our present battle and our present struggle. Most Christ followers throughout history have walked through deep, dark times. And as the influence of the Christian worldview and ethical system is waning in our nation, we can't succumb to feelings of alarmism or cynicism. Jesus forewarned this would happen. We need to expect it. And scripture also tells us how we can rightly respond to it. And there's three things I think that scripture tells us to respond to the worsening wickedness. The first one is this. James reminds us in his epistle that a key component of religion that is pure and undefiled before the Lord is keeping ourselves unstained from the world. As the culture grows darker around us, we have to resist the temptation to twist scripture to accommodate the ways of the world within our Christian community. You know, right now, seemingly every day, there seems to be a revisionist interpretation of scripture that says God's truth, God's morality, God's ethics can really be set aside. It's not true. And we can embrace whatever the agenda of our culture might be. However, God's worth, God's word is truth. It's inspired, it's inerrant, and I'm not talking about areas where genuine Christ followers can disagree on a tier three doctrinal issue. I'm talking about clear instructions of scripture. We do not have the right to twist, reinterpret, and try to accommodate God's word to fit in with what our culture desires. We are called to be called out of our culture. We are counter-cultural. God's truth and morality are objective and binding. We cannot make God's truth subjective and malleable in order to blend in with our culture. So we must keep ourselves unstained from the world. But second, we need to remember that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We don't have to be afraid. God has given us many powerful promises to take a hold of. God has given us the power of the gospel that sanctifies us, that empowers us for holy living. God has given us the gift of his presence through the Holy Spirit who seals us for the day of redemption. God has promised that he will never leave us or forsake us. Not only that, we have the promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against the gospel going forward powerfully to all nations and seeing disciples made even in the darkest of places. No matter how the darkness grows, no matter how depraved our world gets, the world cannot defeat one of those promises from the Lord. Those are secured, which reminds us that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We don't have to grow cynical or alarmed. And lastly, we need to remember that our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. As our nation drifts a little further from its Christian convictions, we, all of us, myself included, can be tempted to fixate on the political climate of our country. That coupled with the advent of the 24-7 doom and gloom news cycles, Christians can grow so fixated on our earthly citizenship that we forget our ultimate citizenship is no longer in this world. As Paul reminds us in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, and it's from heaven that we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can save us. As the wickedness of our world worsens, we should be daily reminded that our citizenship is not in this world. It's in heaven. Our king is Jesus. Our fate is sealed. Our hope is unshakable because it's in Christ. And we have to remind ourselves that no politician, no court decision, no president can ultimately deliver our nation from the present darkness it faces. 
The only lasting deliverance that comes, comes from when Jesus returns and reigns as the righteous king forever. And knowing that, our daily prayer should really be Maranatha. Maranatha is a New Testament word that means, O Lord, come. And it was a prayer that the believers would regularly use. We should cry out, Maranatha, O Lord, come. Rather than fixating on the problems of our earthly nation, Jesus is inviting us to meditate on the glory of his heavenly kingdom. So if Maranatha is our daily prayer, we would be wise to understand what's going to happen when Jesus does return. And that's actually where our passage ends this morning in verses 29 through 31. Jesus gives us a picture of what's going to take place at the end of the seven-year tribulation when he returns to establish his kingdom for a thousand years. Let's take a look at those verses one final time. Jesus says, immediately after the end of the great tribulation, that seven-year period uh, of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, for they will see the Son of Man, that's a term Jesus uses for himself, coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. And Jesus will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And these three verses, we see our two final themes for this morning, divine discipline and eternal exaltation. When Jesus returns, he's coming to do two things, to judge the world in perfect righteousness, and then to rule the world as the perfect king. But before we consider those two things, let's look at some of the imagery Jesus uses to describe his second coming. And as we look at that imagery, we quickly realize that Jesus' second coming looks very, very different than his first coming, doesn't it? During Jesus' first coming, he took on human nature and mostly veiled his divine nature. During his second coming, Jesus will no longer veil his divinity. His divinity will be on full display as he comes upon a cloud with great power and great glory. Think about this way. Jesus' first coming was a lot like viewing a solar eclipse. During a solar eclipse, you have the sun and the moon moves in front of the sun. And when the moon moves in front of the sun, the sun is still there. Nothing has changed about it, but some of its light, some of its brilliance has been temporarily veiled. That's kind of how it was when Jesus came to earth the first time. His divine nature, while never being compromised or diminished in any way, was veiled by his humanity. And there were times where he pulled that veil back and gave a sneak peek to his disciples and apostles of what his full divine nature would look like. But when Jesus comes back, his full divinity will be on display. All power, all glory will be fully illuminating this entire world. And and the passage uses the most cataclysmic language it can to say that it is going to be a cosmic event that shakes the universe to its very core when Jesus comes back. There will be no mistaking the second coming of Jesus. Additionally, during Jesus' first coming, he came as the savior of the world. He came to take away and atone for the sins of humanity. However, when Jesus comes a second time, he comes not as savior, but as the judge of the world. He's coming to punish evildoers and execute justice. And Paul states this very clearly in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 10. Here's what Paul writes. 
When the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, he's talking about the same exact time period that Jesus is here. He's going to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. For when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. When Jesus comes for a second time, he's coming to administer divine discipline to a rebellious, wicked world. And from the book of Revelation in chapter 19, we have even more detail of what this return is going to look like. In Revelation 19, we learn at the end of the great tribulation, the nations of the world are going to gather under the leadership of the Antichrist and the false prophet and Satan to make a final war against Jesus. Even after seven years of experiencing God's punishment and having opportunities to repent, their hearts are rock hard and they refuse to be ruled by Jesus. They'll gather together in a valley called Armageddon over in the Middle East to confront Jesus. And that's when this takes place and Jesus gloriously returns. And once this takes place, it says Jesus is going to return, coming on the clouds with glory and power. And as the world sees the glorious return of Jesus, according to verse 30, they will mourn. However, this is not a mourning of repentance over their sin. It's a mourning that comes from recognition that they are about to feel the full force of Jesus' just discipline for their rebellion and their wicked ways. And the rest of Revelation 19 tells us how this scene's going to end. As Jesus returns gloriously from heaven, he's going to be accompanied by the armies of heaven arrayed in white linen, which I think will be us, the saints. I think that's actually what Jesus is getting after in verse 31. An angel is going to summon and gather all of the elect from one end of heaven to the other. I think that's us. And we will return with Jesus to be with him for his millennial kingdom for a thousand years. As Jesus comes, he'll wage war with the armies of the world. The false prophet and the beast will be defeated. They will be cast into the eternal lake of fire. The armies will be destroyed and Satan will be bound and thrown into the bottomless pit for a thousand years as Jesus rules physically here on the earth as the promised Davidic king, thus fulfilling many of the Old Testament prophecies that were given long ago to Abraham and the nation of Israel. Whereas Jesus' first coming concluded with his execution, his second coming will conclude with his eternal exaltation as king. There's much we could say about the millennial kingdom, but that's not today's sermon. That'll be another sermon. But as we conclude our sermon and we see the end of our passage here in Matthew 24, we realize that Jesus gives us a glimpse of what the end of current human history is going to look like. I'm very grateful that he does that because knowing the end helps us know how to live right now in the present, doesn't it? Knowing the end transforms how we experience the present. Just think about it this way. Let's say that it's fall and you uh, DVR'd a Packers game and you were just on your way home and someone texted you and let it slip who won in the final score and you learned that the Packers wound up winning the game, right? So now it's kind of spoiled the end. You know the end, but you still want to watch the game and see what happens. And let's say as you're watching the game at halftime, the Packers are down 10, right? Even though it looks like the odds are stacked against them, even though it looks like they're probably going to lose you know how the story is going to end. So rather than being the anxious 
you know, fearful Packers fan that you normally would be, you're cool, calm, and collected, and you can just enjoy the game because you know that there's going to be a comeback and they will be victorious. That's what it's like for us. We know the victory is already won. Even though we don't know how the details of every play will go and unfold, we know how the story went. We know that Jesus will win, Satan will lose, and sin will be forever dealt with. We know that anyone who's in Christ will have eternal life and anyone who rejects Christ will suffer eternal punishment. And knowing how the story ends helps us know how to live right now in the present. Knowing how the story ends reminds us of of a few things. It reminds us that God's justice is sometimes delayed, but it's never denied. Sometimes things happen in this world. We see evil We see wickedness and we think, why doesn't God answer and deal with this right now? God's justice is sometimes delayed, but it's never denied. God delays his justice to give an opportunity for repentance so his grace might be shown forth. But in the end, his justice will certainly be delivered. It will never be denied, which reminds us why we don't have to be avengers in our life. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and we can entrust God's just punishment to him on his timing. Knowing how the story ends reminds us that only those who have trusted in Jesus will have eternal life, which reminds us that we need to take every opportunity we can to share the gospel of Jesus with those who don't yet know him. Knowing how the story ends reminds us how much Jesus hates sin. He compares sin to a decomposing corpse that he's gathering around to deal with, which reminds us that we can't cherish sin in our life. We need to take seriously opportunities like communion to confess, repent, and be cleansed of sin. And lastly, it reminds us that in the hard days, no matter what, God is in control, Jesus is exalted king, and we can trust him even in the darkness. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have given us a sneak peek of what the end of the story will look like. And as we know that in the end you will be victorious, that Satan will be defeated, that sin will be forever purged, help us to cry out Maranatha and long for the day where you will reign as righteous king. And Father, until that day, allow us to be reminded that our citizenship is in heaven. And as Colossians 3 would say, allow our mind to be set on things that are above rather than fixated on the distractions and sins of things that are here on this world. Father, we ask that the gospel message might go forward in power. If someone even here today doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, allow them to respond to this message and trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins today. We thank you for your glory and your victory and your power in our life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.